Hi there, and welcome to Even If, a weekly podcast about standing firm when life is shaking. I'm your host, Kelly Strife. Strife rhymes with wife. And together, we're finding the courage to approach uncertain and unwanted seasons of life through a posture of faith that stands firm and declares, even if he doesn't, he is still good. My freshman year of college, I somehow talked my way into a class on the book of Romans, and this class was usually only open to sophomores and above. But I really loved this book of the Bible, and I couldn't wait to study it, and so somehow I convinced the professor to let me in. And the professor that taught this class was both loved and feared because he was really good, but he had really high standards, and he expected a lot from his students. And to be honest, I don't actually remember too much about what I learned from the book of Romans. But I've never forgotten an offhanded comment he made at the beginning of class one day. And if any of my King College, now King University alumni friends are still in touch with Dr. McClanahan, you can let him know that I've never forgotten this. So I was chatting with a few friends at the beginning of class one day, and I was telling them about my weekend. And several of us from campus had traveled a couple hours away to a church. We'd done a performance there, and we were on our way back to campus when it started snowing. And the snow was picking up and we were getting a little bit worried about making it back to school safely. We were in a 15 passenger van. Our driver was probably 20 years old. And so tensions were getting high as we started sliding all over the interstate. And it took us several hours more than it should have to make it back to campus. So when we got back, there was this overwhelming feeling of relief that we had arrived safely. And as I was telling people this story in class that Monday, I made the statement But God was so good to us, and we made it back safely. And Dr. McClanahan attacked. All right, really, he just raised a question, and it was actually a question that was formulative in my understanding of God to this day, but I felt attacked at the time. He said, so what if you hadn't made it back safely? Would God not have been good then? And I could feel the hairs on my arm start to stand up. Immediately, I felt so defensive and my body got tense and my voice took on a different tone and my face hardened because I felt like he'd missed the whole point. Yes, of course, God would have still been good even if we hadn't made it back safely, but I was simply acknowledging God's protection over us on that journey. And I felt like he implied something about my theology that simply wasn't true. Full disclosure, some of you are going to have that feeling while you listen to this episode today. You might feel a little bit attacked, and you might feel a little bit defensive because, of course, you believe in God's goodness no matter what. But the language that we're using, the way we talk about the goodness of God, is often subtly building a theology that crumbles when put to the test and tells suffering people that God isn't actually good to them. Nine days after our daughter Imogen was stillborn, my husband and I showed up at church and we really didn't have any business being in church. We were not ready to be there, but we didn't know what else to do because we had expected to be, you know, sheltered at home with a newborn. We didn't expect to be able to go. And so there wasn't anything keeping us away and we showed up. We were like two giant open wounds walking into church that day. We really shouldn't have been there. Because the church doesn't really know how to handle suffering, and certainly not in the corporate worship context, but there we were, and we were singing about the goodness of God, and I was just trying to not run from the building. 
which full disclosure, I did another Sunday. Only did it once. And when we finished singing the song, one of the pastors came out to make the transition. And listen, he was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. He was doing exactly what we all do. His job was to lead the congregation into a practical and personal reflection on God's goodness, to make what we had just sung about real in our lives. And he said, you know, Sometimes we sing about God's goodness in a detached, routine way. We don't actually take the time to acknowledge God's goodness in our lives. He said, I want us to take a minute right now and think about how we know God is good, how we've seen God's goodness this week. And then, guys, this was literally nine days after our baby had died. This was eight days after we had kissed her goodbye for the last time. And just the day before, we had sat in the funeral home and signed paperwork for her body to be cremated. And there we were in church while this sweet, well-intentioned but naive pastor said, I was up early this morning holding my newborn baby. And I thought, how can you look at this child and not believe God is good? How can you stare at the sweetness of a baby and not know God's goodness in your life? I looked at my baby and that's how I know God is good. What about you? How do you know God is good? I know what he meant. But standing there in church on Sunday, all I could think was, then what does that mean for me? Because if you know God's goodness because you've looked into the eyes of your healthy, breathing baby, what does that say about God's goodness in my life? Is God good in your life and not mine? And here's the problem. We have reduced our understanding of God's goodness to the result of his actions instead of the source. His goodness has become contingent on what he does instead of the manifestation of who he is. When God's goodness is based on his character, then we view all of his actions through a filter of trust, of faith, of expectation. When his goodness is the source, every action must be considered good, even if it doesn't meet our earthly definition. And while this is a subtle shift, it's a massive distinction. This is not semantics. This is a theological foundation on which everything else hinges. Because either God is good or he isn't. Either God is good when you're staring at your newborn baby and when you're saying goodbye to your child or he isn't good at all. Either God is good when the answer is yes and when the answer is no or he wasn't ever really good to begin with. If God isn't good in our grief, then he wasn't good in our joy. And if he isn't good in the taking, then he wasn't good in the giving either. Our feelings can change. This isn't about stuffing or hiding or denying how we feel. Our feelings will ebb and flow as a result of the situation we face. But God's character can't. And Hebrews chapter 13 verses 7 and 8 tell us, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ, say it with me, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character never changes. The way he manifests his presence with us does, but his character does not. And at first glance, that's what I saw when I read these verses. This scriptural evidence that God's character isn't shifting based on our situation or circumstance. 
that the God who walked among Adam and Eve in the garden and the God who walked among us here on earth, that the God who now dwells in heaven, having completed his rescue mission here and having been returned to his rightful home is one and the same. But the words that precede that familiar phrase are just as important because it's a reminder that there are people who need to imitate our faith. And just like we're called to imitate the faith of those who have gone before us, there will be people striving to imitate ours. And if our language is communicating a theology built on anything less than the fullness of God's goodness, if it caters to the world's definition of good, it won't sustain the faith it's meant to support. And here's the problem. When we so quickly and exclusively attach our God is good declarations to the feel good gifts he gives us, we are slowly conditioning ourselves to respond to his actions instead of his character. You know the experiment, the one with Pavlov's dogs, the one where he conditioned them to salivate at the ringing of the bell, even when the bell wasn't accompanied by the food that they were actually hungering for. When we attach God's goodness to the welcomed gifts he gives us, we salivate over the ringing of a bell instead of the nourishment of his nature. And the stimulus becomes an affirmatively answered prayer, a long-awaited opportunity an arrival instead of the journey. And while those things should certainly elicit thankfulness and an appreciation for the way God's goodness has manifested in our lives, if we're not careful, they become a measuring stick against which lesser understood manifestations always fall short. And if we're not careful, speaking them over ourselves or into the lives of others leaves us woefully unprepared for the suffering seasons of life when we can't hold up a newborn baby or a job promotion or a clear scan as tangible evidence of God's goodness in our lives. We have to condition our response to something stronger than simply the gifts that we define as good. And so, This pastor wasn't wrong when he prompted us to declare God's goodness in our daily lives. And he wasn't wrong when he found evidence in the sweetness of his child. I wasn't wrong when I attributed God's protection in a snowstorm to the goodness of his character. Our God is good and he does good. That's from Psalm 119. And all good gifts come directly from him. That's James 1.17. It's just that the repeated connections between God's goodness and the manifestation of that goodness in circumstances that we understand without the acknowledgement that he'd be just as good even if he hadn't, without the framework that because of his character, everything that comes our way will be used for goodness in our lives, without the heart check that asks, could I still declare his goodness if this situation hadn't turned out according to the plan? slowly build a shadow belief that can't withstand being put to the test. And they will be put to the test. So how do we strengthen our theology without putting caveats on everything we say? Am I suggesting that we not say God is good as an appropriate response to the gifts he gives us? No. And yes. (laughs) First and foremost, it's a heart check. It's an invitation to ask ourselves the question, would he still be good even if? 
It's the voice of Dr. McClanahan interrupting our story just to say, hey, would he have been any less good if the situation had turned out different? No? Then go right ahead. Yeah? Then remember, God's goodness doesn't change no matter how it's manifesting in our lives. It doesn't always require a verbal acknowledgement or a change in our language or the words that we use. But sometimes it does, especially in a corporate setting or on a public platform. Our language reveals the framework of our own beliefs, but it builds the scaffolding for others. And this is important. I'm talking about how we share about our own experiences, not about how we speak into the experiences of others. It is rarely helpful to step into someone else's intense suffering and clobber them with cliche statements about God's goodness and purpose and plan. That is not what I'm suggesting. Don't don't do that. But I am asking the church, people of faith, to use language that includes suffering, to stop securing God's goodness to answered prayers and blessing and favor. Because where does that leave those of us for whom the answer hasn't come? Where does that leave those of us for whom the answer was not yet or no? Where does that leave those of us like me who don't have a baby sleeping on our chest as manifest evidence of God's goodness in our lives? Our language matters. And our theology matters even more. And next week, I'm going to talk really practically to those of us who are having a hard time grasping God's goodness here and now, because I know that's hard for a lot of us. But today, I'm speaking directly to the rest of us, the ones who aren't in the throes of suffering and pain. Your language is either conditioning you to salivate for the gift or the giver. And the response you're generating right now is building the theology you'll live in when circumstances change. And I know I might be stepping on some toes, but this isn't semantics. It matters. It matters for who you're becoming and for how you're influencing those who are watching because they are watching. And I want us to be able to live in the dark night, what we're declaring here in the light, because that is what will speak more than we know. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Even If. My prayer is that even if your knees are weak, today's episode offers you enough strength to keep standing firm. If this message resonates with you, or if you know someone who needs to borrow a little strength of their own, there are two ways that you can help spread the word. First, leaving a rating and review will help people find this podcast when they need it most. And it lets me know that people are listening and joining in. Reviews are super important in the podcast world, and I'd be so grateful if you'd take 30 seconds to rate and review. Second, spreading the word on social media helps get this message out farther than I ever could on my own. So please feel free to share this podcast and tag your friends that would love this as much as you. I always continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at kelly.strife if you want to join us there. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure these episodes show up automatically in your feed each week. See you back here next week for the next episode of Even If.